we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello and welcome, dear listener, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 332, 22nd of March. I'm holed up in a hotel room in Sydney, That's hence the strange background. I, of course, am Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. With me, as always, every second week is Shay the Subversive. Good evening. And Joe the Tech Guy. Evening all. Right. So, so yeah, last week was the debate. This week will be our usual panel discussion of the news and politics and sex and religion of the previous two weeks and the goings-on of, of our federal leaders and other stuff. And uh, I'm glad we've switched to every two weeks for rehashing the goings-on by our leaders because it'll be too depressing, Shay, otherwise. Absolutely too depressing. I think I can only take it every second week because you just keep shaking your head at what they're up to and, and saying, how much longer can we take this? So it's hard to say it's going to be an uplifting episode, but we'll do our best to make it informative. <laughs> Last week was good, I thought. Did you listen at all, Shay? Did you manage to get hold of it? I did, yeah. Right, okay. So that was fun with Hugh and he's keen to do another debate at a later time. But as I said to Hugh, the problem is we still do agree on way too much. So I think next debate... One of us will, I'll play devil's advocate of, for something, even where we agree. Mm. I'll just uh, take the opposite side and see where we head. So it was good, mm. fun to do it. It was, I haven't had a good old fashioned debate with somebody since the 12th man left. So that was good. Yeah. I did observe something interesting I was going to say just off air, which is mm. that there was that almost theme again of what we discussed at the last panel discussion. So if you're critically analyzing something, you'll, you may be accused of legitimizing it or condoning it. Yes. Did you, yes. Did you hear that? A little yeah. Bit? At one point he sort of said, so do you support, you know, do you think yeah. the invasion is justified? Almost as if what I had said might possibly mean that I did. Yeah. yeah. There was a bit of that in there, yes. So, so seeing as that's the third time you've got, third or fourth time you've got that kind of feedback, is there something yeah. in the way you're speaking, do you think? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> n- n- no. No, I mean, I observe it on with uh, Cam Riley with his Facebook page. Yeah, people will find it hard to isolate these ideas. And mm. yeah, despite, I, I really like my Hitler preamble analogy. I think that helps yeah. set the scene as to why we can talk about it. So I like that that analogy. Anyway, yeah, because, yeah, I know, I mean, Hugh's not here to defend himself, but there was a, there's just a little bit of good guy, bad guy people get stuck into. In that. But mm. Putin is a bad guy. Well, yeah, of course he is. But there can be multiple factors playing. You don't have to just resort to that. So anyway. And we're seeing it played out in a whole range of topics. Hmm. Yes. Good guy, bad guy, which, of course, we'll discuss. Yeah. So with Kitchings, Kitching, mm-hmm. Kimberly, isn't it? Is it Kimberly Kitching, I think? Yes. Yeah. And who passed away. We'll get on to her, but, yeah, can you speak ill of the dead? And, yeah, there's all sorts of nuance going on. So mm-hmm. you might want to criticise her and criticise other people at the same time. Anyway, we'll get to that. What have I got on my list here to kick off with? Oh, 
Just for those of you, I gave a Noosa Temple of Satan update last week, and we, separate to the religious instruction lessons, some of you may remember that Robin was involved with the Sunshine Coast Hospital, which is a a, a public government-owned hospital, and he was there as a patient, and he came across the the multi-faith room, which was plastered with Christian iconic matter everywhere. And uh, you might remember there were various emblems of different religions and the pentagram appeared as one of those emblems and then disappeared. And so there was different correspondence with the Sunshine Coast Hospital about the chaplaincy room and the removal of stuff that was in there. And separate to that, a sort of an inquiry by Robin as to what does it take to become a chaplain at the Sunshine Coast Hospital? Because Robin's interested in becoming one. <laughs> so we did a right to information request and got that back yesterday after many, many months. And I haven't had a chance to look through it thoroughly yet. So lots of stuff was held back as being privileged and many documents held back privileged because it was stuff that was going to be going to cabinet for cabinet consideration. Can you believe it? Robin's chaplaincy application. Being discussed at cabinet level. Indeed. And so Tom, the warehouse guy, if you're around, we, we need to talk and talk about how we look at these documents and maybe challenge what was withheld. One of the interesting documents in there was where they were talking about the current procedure for chaplains in the Sunshine Coast Hospital. And one of the emails here reads about their policy, and it is, when the hospital opened, the decision to practice what is called ward chaplaincy was started, which is what we still practice today. This is when we visit everyone on the ward and have what we call rejection at the bedside i.e. the patient identifies that they do not want a visit and we walk away. That is what would have happened on the day in question. So that happened when Robin was a patient and this nun walked into the room and he sort of looked up from his bed and there she was right beside him and there was a bit of a heated exchange where he told her to get out. But this is the system in the Sunshine Coast Hospital that... These people can wander around and enter rooms at will, and it's up to you to reject their offerings, and then they'll leave. And Joe, as you mentioned in our private chat, imagine if there is a satanic chaplain who can wander the corridors of the hospital and go up to a bed until somebody rejects you. Like, I, I think system there'd be a lot of christians up in arms about that if they did yes of course so these people don't understand the offense that could occur by being accosted by an unwanted advance by these religious nutters and Mm. i mean and for some people it could be quite triggering like the number of people who have been abused by members of the Mm. clergy i know when i see i've never been abused by anybody but Mm. certainly went to catholic schools that a shiver runs up my spine when I see a priest in a full outfit, even even nuns, you know, like, so they don't understand how triggering that could be for people, I think. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that's going to be our next battleground. So while we wait for the religious instruction court case uh, to come about, 
for a decision. This one for chaplaincy is ideally suited for satanic activism because it's that case where there's an existing privilege and Satanists want to you know, take advantage of the same privilege. And, and, and they and, don't recognise the privilege they're in. They just think it's yes. normal. Yes. Yeah. And, and the fact that it's run, so the, the chaplaincy is run by a uniting churchman. So it's, it's not, the decisions aren't made by a civil servant. The decisions are made by a minister who is deemed to have the best interest of the community at heart. So you're saying this is for the, for the, the hospital. uniting church, for, the, for that hospital? Right? For that hospital, the chaplaincy roster and decisions as to who gets to be on and all the rest of it mm. is run by a uniting church minister. Mm. Okay. So in one of the documents I saw there, there was sort of arguments about whether Robin was qualified to be a chaplain, and I think... And, and yeah, my guess is you'd need a Cert 3 or a Cert 4 in some form of, what do they call it chaplaincy now? Chaplaincy course. No, not chaplaincy, oh. but what do they call the people who go out into the community and help? The community disadvantaged. service. Or... Community services, yeah, community carer. Right, yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think at the end of the day, both Robin and I are going to have to sign up for some sort of course to do to make our case watertight that we are entitled to apply and i don't know i kind of like the idea of going along to a a christian chaplaincy course and just pretending to be christian and going through the motions and getting my certificate at the end you know i also am really keen to find out whether the nun who wanders the, the corridors at the sunshine coast hospital has done a chaplaincy course of any mm. sort i mean i'd I'd just be really surprised by what qualifications. So yes, it's a nun who wanders around. Okay. Yes, and I don't know. I'll just be surprised if it's. Uh, it would not surprise me if she does not have qualifications. I don't know, but we will try and find out as mm. part of all this. And you know, as part of all this, I've been umming and ahhing about whether to renew my practicing certificate because I really don't want to because it's a pain in the butt but i think you know i have to assume we're going to lose the supreme court case and we're going to have to probably form a incorporated association and do a whole bunch of legal things quite possibly and also just you know this application for chaplaincy as well so and I just can't talk to Robin about legal matters of this nature without actually having a practicing certificate. Otherwise, I'm in danger of, yes. you know, breaching the rules. So, unfortunately, I'm going to have to um, do that. It's unfortunate because, A, it costs money. Like, I've got to spend a couple of grand on professional indemnity and law society fees. B, I've got to do 10 hours of professional development every year. I've been putting it off. I've been putting it off, thinking I'd probably just say, oh, "I've decided to pull out." And then, but now I'm going to have to go ahead. I've got, I've got to cram in ten hours of professional development before the end of the month. So I've bought these instructional videos and whatever that I've got to sit down and read and all the rest of it, and that costs money as well. So anyway, if you're a fan of what we're doing at the Noosa Temple of Satan and you want to help out, we need some donations to help fund my professional development costs and my practicing certificate, go over to noosatempleofsatan.org 
and make a donation and put a note in it for Trevor for legal stuff or something like that because, yeah, we're going to have to do a fundraising drive to help cover some of those expenses as I do all that. But anyway, I think it's a good area. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. And it's not just hospitals, schools, universities, Olympic Games, all sorts of places, Mm -hmm. uh, funny places have chaplains. So, yeah, looking forward to that. In the chat room, Jack says good luck. Thanks, Jack. If you're in the chat room, say hello. All right, where was I? Back to, uh, so that was uh, chaplaincy. Shay, there was a big win for the Labor Party in South Australia. Did you have any thoughts in relation to what happened there? Just listen to some analysis. So without Mr Xenophon, there was some votes to have and Labor got a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realise that Stephen Marshall opened the borders the day before Omicron kicked off. So the day before or the day after it was announced the I this think it new was before because the day before. So he was a bit cavalier, was he? Is that what you're saying? So the analysis is saying that basically he opened the borders, let Omicron in, and ruined Christmas. What South Australians are saying, oh. and so he—that's why he's one of the reasons he is a no longer. In government. So there was that. And then he kept relying on his credibility as a Premier instead of outlining his plan for what now. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why he was sank. And then apparently this other fellow's quite charismatic. Actually, it's because um, Labour ran a smear campaign and it was nothing to do with the policies of uh the Liberal Party, and it was all to do with Labour being mean and, and lying, <laughs> according to Scotty anyway. Mm. And Simon Birmingham. Mm. Right. I know. This new, this new Premier, he's a very good-looking, charming-looking guy, fit, mm. and he spoke very well in the, you know, in his speech where he claimed mm. office. But I don't know, call me crazy, but I just can't trust a a Catholic from the Shoppies Union. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's what I was thinking about too. So I got out the book you lent me. Oh, yeah, I forget I've got my background on. So, okay. dear listener, if you're ever uh, researching anything, Trevor is an excellent resource, <laughs> and he lent me a book for one of my subjects called Corporate Power in Australia, Do the 1% Rule. And one of the other great things about borrowing books from Trevor is all the good bits are highlighted for you. <laughs> and I was I was racking my brain because it's from this book that I had this fear around the shoppies union and I just wanted to like clear up where I where I'd become so suspicious of them. And it's this, it's towards the end of the book that it just says it's talking about contracts and big business and government. Mm-hmm. And it says a more sinister explanation is that. It's around Coles and Woolworths. Coles and Woolworths have a notorious close relationship with the Shoppies Union, Mm. the SDA, which has the largest voting bloc in the Labor Party. The Shoppies Union is criticised for having an arrangement with the supermarkets where they facilitate their thousands of low-paid being made members of the union, delivering the union large numbers and political power. Mm. In return, the union negotiates very employer-friendly terms and conditions for their workforce. There was a scandal when an enterprise agreement struck between the union and Coles was disallowed by the Fair Work Commission where the bar is pretty low, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. 
because it left workers worse off. Coles and Woolworths acting through the shoppies may have been able to pressure Labor into running quiet on issues. Exactly what combination of these levers of power was at work is not clear, but its effects are evident. And I just thought that last sentence in particular was important because you can see it all through the Labor Party in the past couple of weeks with all the coverage around power, factions, Mm. unions. It's all got to get clean. Uh, Well, that'll never happen. But Commission into it, I'd say. Yeah. We had a Royal Commission into unions. They found nothing. Didn't they? (laughs) <laughs> I can't remember. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the shoppies are just notorious for having a lot of power because they've got a lot of members and and being very Catholic and very conservative. And I think I read stuff where he had previously been, you know, anti-abortion, anti-equal marriage equality and things like um, that. I, I haven't he, investigated fully. He voted on an amendment apparently, DDD, uh, Voted against a controversial abortion until birth amendment passed under the former Liberal government. Right. Uh, so he comes from the right of ALP. Yeah, it was was from the Conservative Shoppies Union. Yeah. So, so I'm worried about what will happen there, but we'll see. Who knows? He started off with a lovely speech, so we'll see but my antenna are up and i'm fearful of what he might say so joe you sent this particular graph that you had found from eternity news actually from you're, the, you're, you're a regular reader of eternity joe via the rationalist oh right okay eternity dear listener is the newsletter for uh christian groups no oh, it's, it's a christian newsletter yeah <laughs> yeah and the bit that got you was something they mentioned in the article that they'd lobbied hard for some Christian party or um, something. The Family First Party, who turned out 30 out of 47 seats, so they had a candidate in 30 seats. Yep. And effectively 3.8% of first preference votes. Yep. And they said effectively they think that Clive Palmer's United Australia Oh, sorry, Family First might be luckier in SA in a Senate election if United Australia Party drags down one nation, but they figure that um, Family First lost one nation to a lot of conservative votes. Okay. Well, one nation only got 2.7%, looks like. Yeah. So at the end of the day, just as a first preference, Labor still only got 40.4%. Liberals got 34.6%. Obviously, the Greens at 9.6% would have virtually all gone to the Labor Party, one assumes. I would say. So, yeah, that's South Australia, Labor state premiers everywhere except New South Wales and sort of gone against the grain where state premiers have done well because they've been seen largely to have done a good job in terms of responding to the pandemic and other issues. Like a disaster is normally an opportunity for a government. It normally helps the incumbent. All you've got to do is access the emergency funding that's sitting in a pot off to the side and start spending it quickly. And deploy the army. (laughs) And just just spend it quickly. And (laughs) it's a simple formula unless, unless, of course, you're Scott Morrison and the idea of government actually doing something is just mm. anathema. Like that's not what – that just goes against what they think government should be doing. So 
Anyway, let's get on to Kitching. So who passed away and of a heart attack at a relatively young age and she had some pre-existing thyroid condition, I think it was. And boy, oh boy, there's been a lot of a lot of media about it. And mm. look, all the talk over the last three, four, five, how many years about the appalling treatment of the Morrison government of women generally. Mm. And this one issue comes out where a female Labor politician dies of a heart attack amid her allegations of bullying and the right-wing media has just latched onto it, as you'd expect. I mean, we, Sky News, Murdoch Press, shamelessly deriding the Labor and Albanese. If it had all been the other way around, you wouldn't have heard boo about it. But, mm. but of course, it's a chance they saw to have a dig at the Labor Party. I mean, it's I, I, as you know, dear listener, I read the Career Mail, the Australian, every day. I now purposefully in my mind as I begin, I go to myself as a, as a sort of a mantra, Trevor, this is not a newspaper. This is just the Liberal Party local newsletter. Think of it that way. It's not a newspaper. It's a newsletter by a propaganda outfit. And you might just get some interesting independent news about sport or something, but the commentary is so biased. Anyway, even the ABC, the whole Kitchen's drama, though, shows that that despite the fact that people apparently don't buy newspapers, it sets the agenda and the other news outlets follow it. So the ABC was also wall-to-wall coverage way beyond what was fair in this in this news item and forensically examining whether the Labor Party had anything to answer for in terms of kitching and the and the bullying allegation. And I just felt that it was lazy journalism by the ABC in many respects to just to just accept the agenda that had been set by the Murdoch press and and just add more fuel onto the onto the fire, I thought, of of a fairly nothing argument. I mean, there's no medical evidence that she died of bullying, but you would think reading the papers, that's what's happened. Yeah. That she somehow committed suicide and left a suicide note saying, I've done this because of the bullying I was subjected to. That's that's what you would think had happened by the way things are written. So where was I heading on this is, yeah, the agenda setting by the Murdoch and Sky News the the sheep-like following of it by the ABC is just really disappointing. And so the good reporting by Crikey, uh, fearless reporting, I think. Mm-hmm. So, dear listener, I've been sort of banging on about Crikey for the last few months about how I thought it had been doing a pretty good job. And when we're talking about independent news sources that are worth paying for and supporting. I mentioned John Menendew blog and Crikey in the same breath almost. Crikey, subscribe yet? Not yet. No. Yeah. yeah. But like they did a lot of good stuff on Hillsong and Mm. and religious stuff and and the Kitchings one, 
Guy Rundle did some excellent stuff. And look, I've, I could go through it forensically what he said, but I'll try and summarise it, which was Kitching was part of the Bill Shorten faction. And Bill Shorten, when he lost out after the last election, lost power, and she subsequently lost power as well. And, of course, the Labor, as with all parties, is about factional power. So she had sort of got into her position because of her close ties to Shorten and therefore was in danger of losing her spot because of her close ties with Shorten once he was out of favour. The other part that they mention is that, Guy Rundle mentions, is that, you know, she was a factional power player and not a great advocate for the the people she was meant to represent and very much on the right wing. She was a hard, hard very sort of anti-China and it seems had leaked some Labor Party tactics to the Liberal Party particularly about the girl in Parliament House who was alleged it was she was raped. Uh, what was her name? Not not Grace Tame, the other girl, Brittany Higgins. So there was a very strong allegation that she had leaked to the Liberal Party what was going to happen with Brittany Higgins in terms of Labor Party tactics. So she had been dropped from a sort of a tactics committee and, you know, uh, of course, her version is that she was bullied, but it's equally sort of arguable. Well, you're out of favour because of Shorten. You're out of favour because of deep suspicion that you had been leaking stuff. You're sort of a hard right winger, anti-China, almost neocon. You're not really fitting in here with what we're trying to do. <laughs> so, of course, she was going to cop some flack. Yeah. So you're a, you're a hard-assed political operative and you're just you know treated the way everyone else was not necessarily because you're a woman and you're being bullied so mm. uh, that was the the gist of the first rundle article and then the second one was more like that faction that she's part of is actually leaking a lot of this information to the press now mm. about her allegations of bullying that she'd made to different people at different times and mm. And almost ready to blow up the Labor Party in the process, giving ammunition to the other side and just really self-destructive work by her faction is all the allegations from the Rundle article. Mm. And there was a, he seemed to know what he was talking about. He <laughs> was, did. Was, he did. He was, seemed to have done his homework. Yes. So, I mean, she's dead now, has passed away, so there's no defamation against her. Or she can't, you know, you can say whatever you like about her. It's, not, you know, it's not nice to speak ill of the dead. And a lot of this was happening before her funeral, the day of her funeral. It's pretty ugly. But the fact that stuff was coming out, and even at the funeral, the eulogy by her husband was pretty antsy you know, blaming the way she was treated. So if people say, well, you shouldn't speak ill of the dead on their day of their funeral, well, at a funeral you shouldn't really be pointing at people and saying your bullying was kind of responsible in part for where we are today. 
it's a very messy, ugly scenario, getting way more attention for the wrong reasons than it mm. should get. And it was a, some very good articles in Crikey by by that thing. And it was eye-opening, Mel J, for anyone in the Labor Party looking to participate in that, um, thinking, oh, my God, if this is what factional battles are all about, yikes. So despite all that, Shay, on that very day all that was happening, I did renew my Labor Party membership. I don't know why. But I was... <laughs> yeah. I better hurry up. I've got till the 31st of March. I renewed it partly because there was a threat in there. If you don't renew, then you'll lose your voting. And at some stage down the track, Shay, I may need to vote for you in a pre-selection <laughs> That's somewhere. Right. That's right. So I paid my... If I don't get interested in factional warfare, it sounds like I'll never get there, <laughs> which yeah. I am not interested in. Seems but like you yeah, got the... I guess... The only thing I just wanted to say about it was that almost the day after she died, Bill Shorten went on RN Breakfast. Mm. Did you hear the interview? No, no. So it did seem to be, I did, and he did seem to be genuinely grieving. It seemed to be certainly on bad advice that he be there at all. Right. Basically toward the end he said, maybe if I'd never got her into politics, this wouldn't have happened. Right, yeah. Died and I think of that one remark just set it off. And I don't know mm. what it's like for, I can't mm. actually speak on behalf of all women, mm. but when I hear remarks like that, I mm. hear she couldn't cope. Yeah, condescension. And that's what I hear yelling at me by the Murdoch press with all this mm. shit is women can't cope in politics. And that's the message they want to deliver. Mm. And yeah. yeah, I just twist with rage at that. Yeah, because there doesn't seem to be anything in this that relates to her specifically as being a woman. There wasn't, except for one comment by Penny Wong, who said something to her at one point. Oh, if you'd have had children, you would have, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Some way she was voting or whatever it was. So, and that was a comment by a woman to a, a woman. Exactly. Seem, the sort of attacks on her don't appear to have been sexist in any way they just seem to have been ideological difference factional difference pretty much what you'd expect if she was a man there doesn't seem to be anything that was gender related to this at all but there is a response by some which seems to be well she should have been treated better but almost because she's a woman so uh, yeah i know that when you're a public figure it's a bit different too like politician mm. versus a cricketer but yep. we certainly don't seem to be picking apart Shane Warne's character no of which some could very well be picked apart yeah he's getting to die a hero yep. well lots of people were critical of Shane Warne over the years and nobody ever said that criticism killed him <laughs> exactly <Did> they? <laughs> exactly I mean, that is- <laughs> He had his lovers, but he had plenty of detractors. He had plenty of things that got his heart pumping. Yeah. Where was the press finding all of the bad comments made about Shane Warne and saying, right. you killed him. Heart the attack. Zeus killed him. Apologies. Now, one, one of the things that's come up in this kitchen affair is that she had made allegations of bullying at different times and she put it in writing. And Rundle 
says that that was done as part of legal warfare, where basically she laid the groundwork so that at a later stage she could protect her pre-selection by saying, look, you've been bullying me for the last two years. Here's my allegations of it in writing. You better pre-select me, otherwise I'm going to blow the lid on how I've been bullied. Like that essentially I think is the Rundle argument. So if true, that's a really that's really playing hard, tough factional politics where you're where you're setting your ammunition down in advance. And that reminded me, and I told you about it before the before we started recording, but dear listener, I I had used to know a um, a plainclothes detective and he said that it was common. Oh, actually, and somebody in the chat might actually confirm this for us, amongst playing clothes detectives, that even though mentally they were feeling fine, they would purposefully book appointments with a counsellor or psychologist once or twice a year and just say things like, yeah, it's pretty stressful. Sometimes it gets to me, but I think I'm okay. And really just sort of sowing the seeds of, of potential mental difficulties with the job so that at a later point, if they did something where they might want to have to claim they were mentally unstable or whatnot, they had a, a battery of psychiatry examinations that they could refer to and say, yeah, you know, I have, I've been, you know, I did hit that guy, that baddie, but, uh, you know, I've been battling demons and I've been seeing a psychologist for the last four years, you know, twice a year sort of thing. So, People do do things like this where they lay the groundwork just in case they might need it later on. So anybody... I had the, my pre-selection yeah. if I was willing to forego this podcast. Yes. Join the right faction. <laughs> right. <laughs> could have, yeah. I could have made it. Yeah. I had my... Next time. Bright. <laughs> It'll be you next time. That's why I've paid my my dues. <laughs> but I yeah, think, I think yeah, you almost need to find a seat that nobody's interested in, and um, hope that it builds up and Somewhere becomes a winnable seat. Place. And then <laughs> and then hope they don't parachute somebody in on you over the top. That's in the right. meantime, like that's the risk with these guys. So. Exactly, you got to be good, but not too good. Yeah, and the seat's <laughs> got to be winnable, but not so winnable that they'll parachute. <laughs> Some celebrity <laughs> candidate in. It's a fine line. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, that's Kitchens. Now, I think I will read a little bit of Michael West Media. He also mm. had some good words to say, and I'll read some of it. He said, the ABC had a choice this week, amplify Murdoch's, Murdoch's toxic mean girls coverage or expose News Corp for exploiting the death of Kimberly Kitching for political purposes. It made the wrong choice. New management is in order. Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation is the story, not the sad, sudden death of Senator Kimberly Kitching, and certainly not the grotesque narrative being peddled by News Corp's rabid propagandists. And let me just say, he says, bullying's widespread. He said, there are some good... Writers out there and journalists. I'll come back. I think I think I'll go to his last paragraph that that kind of sums it up. Morning TV and radio producers arrive at work around four a.m. They get their fodder mostly from Nine and News, 
newspapers and websites. Largely without question, although the ABC radio is often better on scrutiny, they reproduce the nine and news stories, which are written, of course, in line with coalition political agendas. So it is that Morrison and co control the daily news cycle. The corporate media rarely dares to follow anything in independent media, such as Michael West or Crikey or people like that. It's too early in the morning. And he concludes, an increasingly captured media has spurred growth in independent media, inspiring community support. People know there is a problem, yet we have the disadvantage of competing for audience against large subsidised corporations having to pay tax and tackle defamation threats with tiny balance sheets. So uh, actually that wasn't the last bit. Let me find the last. I'll skip that. But essentially he's right that, that they're just lazy and look at what was printed in the paper, which is just a propaganda sheet, or what was on the news, which is also a propaganda sheet, and just repeat it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, things like Friendly Geordies, you know the Friendly Geordies with the whole expose on Dutton? Not a peep. Not a peep. Not a peep, but just mountains of stuff about Kimberley mm-hmm. Kitchening, not a peep about Peter Dutton. So... That's a sad state of affairs of our media that we're in. And, yeah, keep looking at those independent sites. What was that, Joe? I said they don't want the AFP kicking down their door, that's why. Mm. Yeah. But they've got the resources and, yeah, I think they're lazy. And I think, I mean, they've obviously got deadlines. They've got to push out lots of stuff. I don't think they've got time to stop and try and understand things but I think um they might be a bit fearful yeah yeah they would be fearful as well mm-hmm. i guess and it's just the headache i mean if you were to come out in a mainstream media piece and write what crikey did about kitching you know there'd be complaints to the abc board you'd be you'd spend the next three weeks or three months probably answering allegations of bias and having to report to the board and justify your actions and all the rest of it it's quite possible you just think i can't i can't do it i'll just give a fluff piece and move on because it's not worth the effort i don't know maybe so but it's depressing i warned you i warned you dear listener let me just see what other comments some of the comments on twitter are quite good on this so one lady said, give me a call when the ALP has been implicated for a suicide whereby the victim was also allegedly raped by an attorney general and the investigation allegedly scuttled by the New South Wales police. Mm. Good point. Imagine if it, the media took and ran with the allegations against Peter Dutton that were laid out recently as hard as they're piling on the bullying allegations against Labor. Linda Reynolds called a staff member who alleged rape a lying cow openly to other staff, yet the LNP want to talk about bullying. Doug Cameron says, the Murdoch Empire, who illegally hacked a murdered schoolgirl's phone, bribed police and disgraced journalism, has again cut its paid character assassins loose to attack Labor and protect Morrison. This disgusting organisation and its rags are a blight on decency and democracy. That is so true. Yeah. So so that was all that on Kitchings and Mean Girls. Um, Artie have been told to talk up. Who's the fox talking head? 
Fox News. Uh, yeah, I know the guy you mean, but I can't. Well, apparently he's been so pro-Putin and pro-Russia that yep. um, RT have been told to use his clips more often. Yes, yes. Speaking of RT, my interview on RT, I did find somewhere. I'll put a link in the show notes. So if you want to see my RT interview, it is out there. Not on RT, but somebody else is sort of Do you need me to archive it for you? Yes, maybe. So, so it is still out there. I just like the comments on it because these people in the comment section, you know, obviously call me evil and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> but the best part is they think I'm Jewish. They say, look at his nose. He's got it. So, yeah, we need to archive it for posterity just for the comments. Let's see. So Elbow's looking good. Like he's lost mm. weight. He's worn some lovely fitting suits. Hair's looking good. New glasses, maybe. You saw Lots the, of the um, crew have met him and they, they all say, oh, i got some time for Albo. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. They never said about Bill Shorten. <laughs> no. <laughs> and Scott Morrison said in response to that, I'm not pretending to be anybody else. I'm still wearing the same <laughs> sunglasses, sadly the same suits. I weigh about the same size and I don't mind a bit of Italian cuisine. I'm not pretending to be anyone else. And when you're Prime Minister, you can't pretend to be anyone else. So he wasn't pretending to be a hairdresser or a welder. <laughs> it's or just a shark real... supporter. That's right. <laughs> or, or a bloke from the, uh, the the West End of Sydney. Yeah, it, It's just relentless. He's lying. So yeah, but he doesn't think he's lying. I, 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 he just doesn't think people are. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He must know he's lying a bit. Well, I don't know. It's uh-huh. it's hard it's to psychoanalyze. Yes, yes. He just thinks he's a good guy. They're all bad guys. Say what you like. Ends justify the means. Nobody's listening anyway. I'll just wrap it things off, and it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, and whether I get fact checked. Doesn't matter because nobody will read the fact checkers and. I'll get my sound bite and I'll set another I'll I'll be in the news. It's just ludicrous mm-hmm. for him to say that he doesn't pretend to be someone else when every minute of the day he's welding something without a proper mask on or he's got a vis high vis vest on in a truck tooting the horn or you know, as you say, washing somebody's hair or whatever. Goodness me. So actually, uh Shay, this is a good one to check with you about. Let me just find, I'll just get this thing up on the uh, screen. And so there was a logo for the <laughs> for the Women's Network, another government <laughs> initiative. And so it's up on the screen. Most people would have seen this about this Women's Network logo. And, okay, it seems that the consensus is that it looks like Men, a man's genitalia, shall we say? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I looked at it and I thought it was a tamp- <laughs> a tampon. With okay, that was my immediate impression. And I was reading some other comments where this woman said she looked at it and thought it was a man's genitalia, and in, and her husband looked at it and thought it was women's breasts. So. This is a bit like those ink stains, oh. you know, where you put Raw something shot. in front of somebody <laughs> and you and you say, what do you see? And that tells you something about the person. <laughs> Must be mummy and daddy. Yeah. I actually do see that now. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that milkshake commercial thing where they're trying mm. to demonstrate how to give informed consent with the lamest milkshake video. There's, there's nothing this government can get right. They can't even do a women's network logo without just stuffing it up. So nobody was nobody was tested. Nobody was like, when you look at this, what do you <laughs> see? There are people. Are who you immediately say, inspired and empowered by that. Mm. Ladies, mm. <laughs> it, it was deliberate. They were seeing if they could pull one over. Maybe, maybe it's just... got to be. It's got to yeah. be a dig. It yeah. has got to be a dig. Yeah. Well, it's like I was saying a few weeks ago. The Morrison government is like the producers. It's a it's a satirical performance. They're just they're not serious. They're trying to just like the producers tried to run a Broadway play that everyone would hate because of a tax scam and would be a disaster. Somehow Morrison is running a, a government on purpose that everyone will hate for some scam that hasn't yet quite become apparent to me, but he can't genuinely be trying. Um, I wouldn't have thought with, He's with gotta the amount. Be. It's got to be. It's just, right. yeah. He's throwing this out so now these pesky women get upset so he doesn't have to do anything. Yeah, and then he did the milkshake ad, and it wasn't suitable because all the woke left people think it's not good enough, so he doesn't have to do anything. Yeah, so you know he has done one thing though; he's made an announcement. <laughs> yes, for the poor people of Ukraine. Guess what <gasps> we're sending them? Coal. How much coal? Heaps of coal. Honestly, if you see the headline, you you swear. That you're watching, you're just reading the Chaser headlines or <laughs> or the Batuta Advocate or something. Australia helping Ukraine, sending over ship. There was an that's our money, article. just FYI. It's not Scummo's <clears throat> money. I'm just trying to remember. I think it was Independent Australia. There was an article that said, why are we sending Australian coal? Because it's going to cost us a fortune to ship it. We're going to have to ship it yeah. to Poland. Yeah, and they dig up coal in Poland, so we could have just bought coal in Poland from the Polish and yes. shipped it directly. And what's the odds it never actually arrives, and we've just paid this coal company twenty million dollars for coal? Yeah, it, it's another way of just basically giving money to coal industry. And what's happened to be liberal donors? Yes, I was going to say. You see, if you just gave money to the Ukrainians so they could buy it from the Poles. That would bypass the whole transfer of money to a Liberal Party donor. Basically. Yeah. Joe, it might be my industrial deafness. Mm-hmm. You're a little quiet. Can you turn right. yourself up a bit? Yeah, okay. No, right. certainly can. Okay. All right. So that's what Morrison has done. He's uh, delivered a shipload of coal. Well, he's announced, of course. This is just, it's always about announcements with this group. So the polling is looking horrendous for the Morrison government. I've got some polls, but they're kind of like two weeks old now. So, But every poll that you see now seems to show that that Labor is going well. Even a very recent poll from Roy Morgan showed they were going well. And it seems impossible for the LNP to win the next election. But stranger things have happened, haven't they? So let me just, there's one other thing that came up. I want to share this one if I can is i don't know if you saw this picture at all yes yes i've also seen various captions added to the cat (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) 
So he just tries to paint himself as something that he's not, and a cat has now appeared in the Morrison household that nobody's ever seen before. And an unimpressed um, looking cat. Yes. And very you know, unimpressed. Scott Morrison's, you know, comment for his own photo was You've met Buddy before, but this is Charlie. He's been a part of our family for almost 10 years and he's definitely in charge. And most Twitter comments were a variation of the theme, which was even his cat fucking hates him. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that was the Morrison cat. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a Morrison bash fest I'm on, but, God, every, everything he just turns to. So, you know, he announced that we are a launch nation. We are a space nation. We are an astronaut nation. Well, we, we're a nation that had space lab fall on it, but aside from that, that's about the closest we've got. <laughs> Not only does he he himself pretend to be things that he's not, but he's now projecting that onto the rest of us. We are a launch nation. We are a space nation. We are an astronaut nation. You can get in front of the camera and just say the most complete shit. I, 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 th- I think he ought to, somebody ought to slip the Space Australia website and, and let him um, announce that. You've seen Space Australia? No. no. What happens, what uh, happens there? Uh, it's Australian Research and Space Exploration. Right. Known by their acronym, ARSE. Oh, okay, ARSE. Very good. <laughs> There's a website and you can buy T-shirts with okay. ARSE on them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Julia says, can we get a content warning before you put up Morrison photos? I feel ill now. Is, yeah, so that is true. Okay, I won't put up the Peter Dutton photo then in that case. I'll hold that one off. Yep. So, so now Dutton, I believe today, announced Space Force because there was an article in The Australian saying that he was going to. This is an article I got from a couple of days ago saying that today on Tuesday, Defence Minister Peter Dutton will flag the creation of an Australian Space Force. In a speech on Tuesday, marking the standing up of a new Space Command division within the Australian uh, Royal Australian Air Force, I mean, this is an example of ministers of a government that we pay for just dropping scoops onto their favoured media outlets, i.e. the Australian. should not be a a thing. Anyway, he says uh, he'll tell the Air Force's Air and Space Power Conference that the growing militarisation of space will require Australia to take a more proactive role to deter attacks on the nation's satellite assets. Make no mistake, we are looking forward. It's a necessary endeavour with a view to protecting our national interests and our need for a space force in the future. The reference to an Australian space force suggests a fully-fledged branch of the armed forces that would stand alongside the Army, Navy and Air Force. And as Bernard Keane in Crikey points out, we can't look after flood victims or aged care residents or provide housing for young people or mental health services or close the gap, but let's have a media release about Space Force. It's, it's, again, it's just they just love an announcement. and Prior to an election. Yeah, Space Force. Did anybody go, what a great thing, what a great idea, I'm all for that, and I can, I can easily conceive the government pulling this off. Oh, 
Surely not. <laughs> yeah, no. No. So that'll be just yet another announcement, hopefully, where nothing ever happens. Talking of space forces, did you see the um, cosmonauts? Was this where they've sort of been redacted from something? Is that what you mean? They, they turned up on the ISS, I think, wearing yellow uniforms with blue flashes on it. Oh, but really? It because they... Yeah, they apparently had lots of leftover material and it was nothing to do with them supporting Ukraine. Is that right? So apparently. the Russian cosmonauts wore Ukrainian colours in space. Yes. I think I saw the picture, but I didn't actually read the article. So, yeah. <laughs> what else have we got here? So there's a guy called Shane Stone. He's the National Recovery and Resilience Agency Coordinator General. And he was appointed to the job by Scott Morrison to help people in the regions cope with floods and fires. And, and he effectively blamed the, the victims. He said, you've got people who want to live among the gum trees. What do you think is going to happen? Their house falls in the river and they say it's the government's fault. And this is the guy in charge of the National Recovery and Resilience. How do the guys like this get into these positions? with zero empathy for the people they're supposed to be helping. Well, obviously a mate of Scott Morrison, so. Well, it sounds, wanted... sounds like Hellsong, really. Yes, it does there sound was, like Hellsong. There were questions asked about how much the um, Hellsong Church were doing for the flood victims. Yes, not a dollar to be seen, no doubt. Oh, by the way, I was in Lismore and Willembar last week and uh, – Complete disaster zone. Driving into Mwilumbar, just the streets lining the main road in, have just got mountains of mattresses, furniture, just piled metres high in front of their houses, waiting for a skip bin to come along to be dumped into or just picked up. And it's a disaster zone. Did you Those... see the truck that headed down mm. to Kirribilli House? No. Headed down from, I think it was Lismore. Right. Um, with a truck full of just flood detritus right. that they were going to dump at the doorway of Kirribilli House, right. only to find that the police had closed the road. So right. they took various bits and pieces, including a door that had got soaked, and wrote messages on it and then posed for photos outside Kirribilli House with all the flood debris, basically right. saying, Morrison, this is, a, this is your inaction on climate change has caused this. You're responsible. Yeah. So, yeah, people in Lismore totally crushed, customers of mine who have been there for, you know, their entire lives and run businesses in the CBD. And no, no, they've no, had no. they've chosen to live by the floodplain. Yes, indeed. And they're all crushed. And that town, I can't see it recovering. I, those people can't do it again. So it's really sad. It's not like you could just, you know, like Grantham here in Queensland was mm -hmm. flooded. It was just a small Big little town. Move. And they basically found a plot of land on high ground and just shifted the entire town to higher ground. But I don't think you can do that in Lismore. A, it's it's too big, and B, there's just not a lot of land around that isn't on a floodplain in that area. There's not a lot of high ground to go to. But I'm having this conversation hmm. on Sunday with a friend of mine, and you can't do this in the Pacific Islands either. You can't hmm. move the people of Fiji to fucking higher ground. You mm. have to do some things. Mm. Yeah. It's better than this. Yeah, we're not. No. 
we're not. Scott I mean, Morrison, if you're listening. <laughs> if, if you look at New Orleans, although they flood from time to time, yes, um, it's the Army Corps of Engineers who are responsible yeah. for building and maintaining all the flood prevention works, all the levees. And, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, so they're basically, they say, if we keep them trained on civilian projects when it comes to time of war, right. they actually know what they're doing. Right. Okay. I don't know if we have a similar core here, but no. It it so there were places like uh, there's a new Bunnings built, which was built since the last the, the the previous flood, and was meant to be on clear dry land. Like they'd looked at the worst floods before and built a Bunnings store, and it was a meter under. My customer they had a two story building, so they moved everything up onto the second floor. And the second floor was flooded. Like it was like four meters or more of water in this town. It's not just waist high. It's an unbelievably deep flooding of of the town. And uh, yeah, they're just gutted. So I feel sorry for them. Don't know what will happen. I think, you know, no insurance company will insure these people. No. It has to be a government. It has to be some I, government I've, insurance. I've some seen. Sort some arguments against national reinsurance saying that at the end of the day it doesn't work mm. and it, it just basically encourages risky risky development because yeah. somebody else is wearing the risk yes yep i don't know what the solution is i just maybe the town of lismore dies mm. maybe it was already maybe it was already dying i don't know but i just feel sorry for them so let me just go back to my list here i just wanted to say that i think it was Today, what's the date today? Mm, today's 22nd. Yeah, the Sydney Morning Herald just reported that the New South Wales Planning Minister scrapped an order to consider flood fire risks before building. What? Not already? Flood the fire. New South Wales Planning Minister Anthony Roberts scrapped a requirement to consider the risks of floods and fires before building new homes only two weeks after it came into effect, and while the state was reeling from a deadly environmental disaster. Wow. So he's revoked a ministerial directive by his predecessor, Robert Stokes, outlining nine principles for sustainable development, including managing the risks of climate change, a decision top architects have branded short-sighted and hard to understand. So they're not just doing nothing. They're actively being negligent. Oh, well, developers will be happy. Mm, exactly. Yeah. You saw um, Susan Lay, by the way, talking about environmental change. Was that her comment about you oh, would, 20 was... years ago you'd never have the Defence Force involved in projects like this? Oh, no, no. that no, wasn't that's her. Bridget McKenzie. Oh, sorry. Um, no, no, this, 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 it's hard to keep track, isn't it? She she won she won the appeal against the to kids. Not have a duty of care. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. So there was a case, dear listener, where uh, a court had ruled, I think, at the federal court level, maybe single judge, that a minister had a duty to the future uh, generations. Future generations, uh, duty of care, and by expanding new coal mines that was a breach of that duty potentially but on appeal it was found that in fact they don't have a duty of care cause to celebrate <laughs> for the minister and nobody else mm. yeah so there was she that say, she was saying 
Oh, look, everyone's taking us a bit out of control. Of course I have a duty of care. Of course I take my job very seriously. The court ruled that I am just meeting the rules of my, you know, my obligation as a minister mm. and that I am meeting those and that I don't have to do any more. Mm. Just, Everybody just back- stop getting upset and she just like pants as she talks. Yeah. Just getting back to the floods, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced extra financial support would be available for the people in Lismore, Richmond Valley and Clarence Valley, which all sit in the Nationals held seat of Page. The neighbouring flood-affected local government areas of Ballina, Byron and Tweed, all in Labour-held seat of Richmond, have not received the extra $2,000 per person. I can tell you people in Ballina flooded and people in Mwilumba are flooded. And that was just outrageous. And full marks to Catherine Cusack, who was a state senator and she basically a Liberal Party state senator who resigned from the Liberal Party saying, I can't defend that. I'm just outraged by it. The whole Northern Rufus should have been given funding according to their need, not according to their local government area. And um, there we go. Somebody with some principle, finally, Catherine Cusack, good on you. It's just Isn't it sad know. that's the only thing available to her left, though? That's the yes. only thing she, she can do where she might yeah. actually be able to make some noise, which is resign. Yeah. She can't just get on the phone to that dipshit at the helm. Yeah. And say, listen, you schmuck. Yeah. So, you know, it's not Morrison's money. It's not coming out of his own pocket. Why would you just, you've got to be so lousy. You've got to be so lousy not to just provide it to the people who need it. Nobody is going to criticise you for that. No, no, it's it's not to spend on uh, Mm. voters. It's to spend on, and it's donors who, who will be objecting if he doesn't spend it on them. Yes. So donors or electorates where you think you need it for keep your electorate happy. I mean, it's just a litany of terrible things. Oh, it's a de- I'm sorry, dear listener, it's a depressing podcast. Yes. But you just keep cataloguing this nonsense, this crap, yeah. these crappy decisions that are just so unnecessary. They're just assholes mm. who just don't give a shit. And what, what you know, it's hard to say. What more? What more can you say? Vote them out. Yeah, please, Stuart Robert, acting education minister. He blamed the bottom ten percent of teachers who can't read and write for Australia's plummeting performance in international education benchmark tests. His comments were widely reported, and came in a speech to Independent Schools Conference, where he made it very clear where these dud teachers can be found and it's not in the independent school system. Quote, you just don't have them. You don't have the bottom 10% of teachers dragging the chain, he said. But for every teacher you don't have in your organisation, guess where they go? End quote. Government schools, apparently. To to Scandinavia, where they have 100% state-run schools. Yeah. And better education outcomes. Yeah. There are dud teachers out there for sure, but they're duds in the... Independent and in the government sector, and and it was just this pro-private school rant by the acting education minister. 
that's just great, isn't it? <laughs> You're an acting education minister, not just he's not independent school education minister. He's the education minister, and he's just bagged the government sector. But hang on, hang on. State schools are state yeah. schools. They're yeah. Not federal schools. Yeah. Yep. I'll just keep going on with a litany of bad news and bad decisions. Housing affordability. I wonder if I put this one up in the... Yes, I did. Okay. So you want more good news, dear listener? More bad news? I'm sorry to do this to you. Why isn't that showing up? So I'll just tell you what it says. Housing markets ranked by affordability. So what they did was they looked at the median ho- the median house price. So median house price, dear listener, is all the houses sold in a particular year. Look at the cheapest house and the most expensive house and put them in a list from top to bottom. And the one in the middle of that list is the median house price. And then you've got the median household income, same thing. And so what they did was they took the median house price and divided it by the median house income. So you would want that proportion to be as low as possible. So in Hong Kong, China, which has the number one spot for the least affordable, the multiple is 23.2, meaning the median house price is 23 times the median house income. So that's by far the worst, Hong Kong. Number two on the list, Sydney, 15.3. So the median house price divided by the median house income, multiple of 15. And here's the terrifying part. I'll read the top 10. Hong Kong, Sydney, Vancouver, San Jose, Melbourne, Honolulu, San Francisco, Auckland, Los Angeles, Toronto. So we've got Sydney and Melbourne at number two and number five. And we've got London is number 13 and Adelaide is number 14. Brisbane, number 17. Perth, number 20. So Australia's capital cities, except for Hobart, and Darwin, but basically Sydney, Melbourne, two and five, and Adelaide at 14, Brisbane at 17, and Perth at 20. Has housing affordability been mentioned at all in discussions by either party about to do anything? No. It's probably well, the major problem. That would problem. require you to take away negative gearing. Yes, actually. And with an average of, what was it, 4.2 houses per MP? Right. Is that what it is? Yes. It's something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's not easily solved. That's the problem now. Also, I saw an article from The Lancet which looked at excess mortality rates in terms yeah, that of... that was interesting. Yeah, in terms of trying to see... Which let me just try and get this up. Lockdowns don't work. Yeah, lockdowns don't work. Maybe I can get this up now. Yes, I can. Yep. So there's a map. So it's interesting when you're trying to work out how many people have died because of COVID, and there's all these arguments. Well, 
people who, you know, they might have had COVID, but they really died of some other thing. They just happen to have COVID. Um, and, I mean, that's a fair enough argument. It, it would be tricky, and particularly in crisis situations where lots of people dying, it'd be really tricky to, to come up with the correct figure for what, how many people died of COVID. But The Lancet argued in this article that really the best method is to look at excess deaths. So you really look at a pattern of five years prior to the pandemic. How many people would you expect to die in a year based on the average of the previous five years? And then you look at how many people actually died and you say, well, the difference is probably due to the pandemic. And that's as, probably as good a figure as we're ever going to get. And it seems to suggest that the numbers are much greater than they would be otherwise by counting the, in other methods. So using that excess um, deaths sort of data shows a higher number of deaths quite often. If you look at that graph that's on the screen, it's sort of colour-coded and Looking at Australia and New Zealand, that dark blue is obviously where you want to be and the orange is where you don't want to be. And the interesting thing about Australia was that we're actually, if you're looking at excess deaths, in a situation where, I'll just quote from the report here, there's been negative excess mortality rates. So the number of people who have died is actually less than what you would expect if you looked at the average And they say in this report, we estimated that several countries, including Australia and New Zealand, have had negative excess mortality during the pandemic. The observation is probably due to decreases in mortality from diseases and injuries for which exposure to related risks has been reduced during the pandemic. So, Because young, stupid men haven't got a chance to go out and be young and stupid. Yes, indeed. That sort of thing is, you know, people aren't commuting, they're not driving as much, all those other factors. So we've actually, when you look at that graph, in a hasn't been excess mortality, it's, it's, it's actually in the other direction. So, so that was interesting. There was a case in the Northern Territory, I'm going to get the name wrong, Kumanjayi Walker, who was shot by a policeman, Zachary Rolf, and Zachary Rolfe was charged with murder or manslaughter. I'm not sure which, but... Both. Both, wasn't mm. And found not guilty. And the interesting thing I found from this was basically people were looking at the jury and complaining that the jury didn't have any Indigenous people on it. Mm. And... I thought the interesting part of it was that the way it was framed was, if you read carefully, the elders said that there was nobody noticeably Indigenous mm-hmm. on the jury because you can't tell. They don't, you don't have to fill in your Indigenous status on in a jury form, I don't think, and certainly that information isn't made public if it is, and... It was really a case of people just looking at the jury and saying, well, they don't seem to be Indigenous, but you just can't tell by looking at a jury. It's possible that half of them were Indigenous. You would never, you, 
it's unlikely, but just looking at, so yeah, I just found it interesting in some of the comments where people weren't careful in the way they described that. And they just assumed that there were no Indigenous people on that jury and other people were better with their language in saying there was nobody noticeably Indigenous on that jury because we don't know. Apparently the demographics is 30% of the territory are Indigenous. Right, yep. Hey, Joe, when I share a screen and then I take it off, does that does that mean the chat disappears? Is that how that Oh, no, happened? no, no. I no. Because the graph was quite small, I took the chat right. off. Okay. But, okay, that's how that happened. Sorry. Yeah, so it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, people have to be on the electoral roll and have to respond when they get a notice to say you've got jury duty. And yep. this is one of those things when people talk about critical race theory mm-hmm. and, you know, the whole idea of critical race theory was that you can make laws that on the face of them are unbiased, but you might, because of the way the system works, get a biased result. So critical race theory would say, sure, anybody who wants to be on the electoral roll can be on it and participate in the jury system, and there is nothing in our system which legally prohibits Indigenous people. There's nothing specific in the legislation about Indigenous people or it's pro-white people that would lead to a result of having an all-white jury. But the fact that there's a system where people in Indigenous cultures, you know, don't have an abode where they get correspondence, you know, culturally don't register for these things, a whole range of factors involved. Which I, mean I would have that, thought travel would be a problem as well. Yeah, a whole range of reasons that mean they actually don't appear on juries. Did the chat, so has the chat disappeared, Joe? Or how's that? When you put the chat back up, only new messages appear. Ah, okay, okay. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of the critical race theory approach to these things where you can have what seems to be neutral laws, but you end up with results that aren't neutral. And I don't know what the solution is in this case. Anyone's got an idea? I'm, I'm all ears. There was an article talking about him being found not guilty and mm. said, effectively, yeah, it was a justified self-defence killing. And, and the problem isn't with that. The problem is a, a society that sets it up where it's always a black man being angry at the system, possibly, and a white man with a gun being the policeman. Mm. And so the single case is justified homicide, but the society that sets it up in that way mm. um, it is skewed against the Indigenous people ever breaking free. Yes. Yeah. I think the argument was that he'd previously, I think, had been... I think the idea was the elders were going to bring him in, but there was a funeral that day. Right. And it was like, let's just see the day out and we'll bring him in the next day sort of thing. But, yeah, it's tricky. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting things going on there in terms of the appearance of whether people appear to be Indigenous or not. And According to, just back on what you said about having a solution, mm. I just did a um, subject in justice, policing diversity groups, so policing, looking at policing the homeless, looking at policing Indigenous people, that type of thing. Mm. And the only thing that really has any empirical evidence that it may work is familiarity. Mm. So seeing is seeing yourself, basically. 
Right, meaning having black coppers. Having that... black coppers, having black mm. jurors, having that sort of mm. thing, black mm. judges, mm. black magistrates, black politicians. Unfortunately, it's not much appeal mm. for Indigenous people to become cops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the option is possibly having them just seen more in other other places like in the arts and yeah the media and that sort of thing but i, I don't know like to hear as a potential juror shortly after the verdict was handed down abc news reported that here's what the jurors in the murder trial of constable zachary rolf weren't allowed to hear before handing down their verdict mm. <sighs> i think i know where you're heading with this yeah so the jury didn't know was that for two years the lawyers who stood before them had been arguing over what could and could not be included in the trial like it's really hard for us to say i wouldn't i wouldn't say where anyone's in a position here who hasn't sat down and heard all the evidence so unless you've sat in the whole trial we know, yeah. look, we've just spent a whole episode talking about how the media... Skew things? Paint, yeah, skew things the way they like. So, uh, and, and in, okay, and what you've got here is a case where pretty much the um, prosecution admitted that the first shot was valid and it was the second and third shots that weren't. And so it was all about the two-second delay between the first and the second shot. And so, you know, you, you've you've got... You've got the prosecution saying the first shot was okay, so mm. you're halfway there. If you've, mm. if you know, we know that much. So, yeah, until you sit down and you hear all of it, and beyond a reasonable doubt, be sure that it's a high bar. So it doesn't surprise me in the least. Actually, on jury selection, I, I remember doing my time um, as a juror mm. and most of the cases were sexual assault when we went in for jury selection i noticed the defense always picked young females not on the jury right they're, they're more likely to have empathy to the victim and so defense didn't want them on right yeah uh, and you know in theory you could have had 30 mm. percent of your potential jurors as being indigenous mm. Uh, and the defence would have gone challenge to every single one. Yeah, but you can Australia only challenge. Actually, selects. I don't think. You... I think America and England do it that way, but I don't think Australia. Yeah, Australia's lawyers, challenge. The lawyers yeah. pick who they get, do they? You yeah. can you challenge, but you run, but you only you have a limited number of challenges. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't challenge relentlessly. No, yeah. you you run out of them. So you have a challenge for cause. And then you have a challenge without cause, but you've only got a certain number, and you and you run out of them. So, but if you do it strategically, yes. Still, if you have enough people on the panel, eventually you just run out of challenges, and people get on. So, yeah, yeah. So that was that. That's oh, the other thing was it turned out that Ben Robert Smith is a mentor for that guy. Did you know that? For Rolf? Yeah, I did hear that. Just what a. Strange coincidence in the because world. from the Ben <laughs> Robert Smith trial, his mother had said this guy had been a mentor? Yes. Or the other way around? Something like that. 
Yeah. I think it was, again, somebody who was presumably trying to help the Ben Roberts case Yes, was not helping. Yeah. So that was the bit that slipped in there. Okay. I think I think we're getting close. I think we've we've done enough. Unless you guys had something you wanted to get off your chest, then I reckon we will call that a night. Because I'm on New South Wales time. It's ten o'clock here. I'm gonna get to bed. I've got a big day tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So um oh Tom the warehouse guy, he's he's working hard on other stuff, but send a message, he's gonna look at the stuff. Thanks, Tom. All right, dear listener, thanks for joining in. I will be back next week with something. Not sure what at this stage. And thanks, Shay. Thank you. Good night. Thanks, Joe. And it's a good night from him. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.